Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. Kiss on the hand, maybe? Quite continental. But diamonds are a girl's best friend. A kiss may be grand, but it won't pay the rental on your humble flat or help you at the automat. Men grow cold as girls grow old, and we all lose our charms in the end. But square cut or pear shaped, these rocks don't lose their shape. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. That uh, Dominic Sandbrook was, of course, Marilyn Monroe, perhaps the most iconic. Tom, nobody's, nobody, nobody's still listening. There's no point talking. Nobody's still listening. <laughs> I thought that was a magnificent performance. <laughs> the most iconic of all Hollywood stars. I realized when I was reading up about her that she is, of course, the same age as the Queen. So if she was still alive now, she'd be 96. Born in 1926. Yeah. 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 But of course, you know, in, in, in Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, she famously says men grow cold as, as girls grow old. But Marilyn never grew old. She died when she was 36. And so she. That's right. Yeah. She serves as a kind of, you know, undying icon of femininity. But this is not a pop, you know, this is the rest is history. This is not the rest is Hollywood. So what is the justification, do you think, for doing an episode on Marilyn Monroe in a history podcast? Well, Marilyn Monroe is still very unusually for a, a film star whose career ended in 1962 has an enormous amount of pop cultural traction even now, doesn't she? I mean, basically the peg for us doing this is the Anna de Armas film, the Netflix film Blonde, based on Joyce Carol Oates' novel, which is out, I think, has just come out this last week on Netflix and in some cinemas. But also, I suppose, 
Marilyn Monroe, uh, she's a classic example of that sort of 20th century figure who becomes an avatar for, for all kinds of other things. So I think she's an avatar for the classical age of Hollywood, for, for a kind of innocent, well, we'll go on to talk about whether it is innocent, for a sense of hedonism and a sort of pre-sexual revolution kind of pleasure-seeking. But also, of course, I think she's a symbol of 50s America, of Eisenhower's, yeah, specifically, I would say Eisenhower's America, the Cold War, buoyant, optimistic, intensely consumerist, uh, the, the world after the Second World War. I think Marilyn Monroe, the very image of her sort of kindles in people's minds this sort of sense of, and of course, this is, we can unpick all this, this sort of lost paradise of American dominance and of Americanization. And I, and I think that's what she represents as much as anything, don't you? Well, except to the degree that she's also a tragic figure. Um, so she's also, she's an embodiment of the dark side of the American dream. Um, she's been caught up in the yeah. snarl of, you know, the, what is it? The paranoid style of politics. What was the, the, Yes, Richard Hofstadt of the paranoid yeah. um, style in American politics. So the, the the way in which she's become the subject to so many conspiracy theories. Absolutely. So she dies um, a year before JFK gets assassinated. And of course, she yeah. was uh, involved with JFK, although to what degree is furiously debated. Um, so she yeah. has been caught up in the snarl of all those conspiracy theories. But also... In a way, she's, she's a kind of icon of a pre-feminist age, but it's very, very easy to interpret her as a feminist figure, I think, both because she clearly suffered at the hands of a male-dominated Hollywood establishment, but also, I think, because she, she played quite an important role in pushing back against that. And I would say also the other reason why she's fascinating is that she, she's like a kind of magnet that picks up all the iron filings of of the broader culture of America in that period. So she touches on advertising. She, yeah. she sings to troops in the Korean War. She she engages with sport in the form of um, Joe DiMaggio, the great baseball star who she marries, um, yeah. with intellectual life in the form of Arthur Miller, who she then goes on to marry. Arthur Miller is, is embroiled in the um, McCarthy uh, investigations and Marilyn plays a quite heroic role in that. I think she's a friend of Frank Sinatra, so there's a hint of the mafia there as well. I mean, she's I think yeah. a really kind of totemic figure historically. So I think I hope that we have justified doing this podcast on her. Well, she has an also a, a dimension that you hinted at a second ago, which we again we can perhaps go into later. Which is you talked about her suffering. So the Joyce Carol Oates book Blonde, for example, on which the current um, film, the Anna de Armas film, is based, is is one of a host of sort of pop cultural visions of Marilyn Monroe that casts her as a victim. And and actually, whether she was a victim, yeah, is worth discussing. Of course, we live now in a in a kind of cultural landscape in which victimhood is highly prized. And, and and indeed celebrated, but whether Marilyn Monroe was was she a victim or was she an immensely canny operator who rose from nowhere to get to the top and did so not by suffering but by being professional, hardworking, remaking herself, all those kinds of things. I mean, that's something else that is that is worth debating. I think it's possible for her to have been both. I mean, I think I think she did have quite a traumatic life. Her upbringing was pretty rough but more traumatic than say audrey hepburn well i think there's a there's a there's a, a kind of dickensian quality to the role that she she mythologized her upbringing but i think it clearly did yeah. leave scars i think she probably i don't want to go all psychoanalytical although <laughs> marilyn's engagement with psychoanalysis is another very very 
kind of paradigmatic yeah. 1950s American thing. But I think she did have, to a degree, daddy issues, perhaps. But I know that both of us hugely admire one book in particular on Marilyn, which was very much friend of the show, Sarah Churchwell, who did a fantastic episode with us on Gone with the Wind. And she wrote, I think it's her first book, isn't it? The Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. In which she, it's a book, not just a, less about Marilyn than about how Marilyn has been understood and presented. And right in the, in the opening page, I'll just read it. So it's talking about the death, which is obviously the most controversial and, and object of particular fascination. It is hardly news that Marilyn Monroe's death remains controversial. More surprisingly, the mysteries surrounding her death are not the only confusions in her story. Uncertainty is the story of Marilyn's biographical life. We don't know nearly as much about her as people may assume. Although Marilyn Monroe was one of the most famous, most photographed, most written about people in the 20th century, we know less about her for certain than about many far more distant historical figures. So I think and I think that's absolutely true. And Sarah demonstrates it pretty conclusively in her book. But the mm. implications of that for the study of history and biography more generally is really quite destabilizing. So we did an episode on Theodora, the circus performer who ends up marrying Justinian, the Roman emperor. And historians debate, you know, how, how much of the stories told in, in the, the scandalous stories told about how, how far are they true? But obviously we, we cannot know because if you, if we can't know. Yeah key details about Marilyn Monroe's life, then what earthly hope do we have of ever kind of <laughs> arriving at solid ground when we study the life, say, of an ancient Roman empress? I think that's absolutely right, Tom. When, we, when I was reading Sarah Churchwell's book, I was thinking she reflects quite often about th these figures in history who we claim to know. How much do we actually really know or how much are we simply, she gives brilliant examples in the book of biographers who repeat other biographers yeah. who are actually repeating the original, you know, the story is kind of going around in a circle. And, and merely because the story is told many times, it becomes enshrined as a fact. But as she says, you know, yeah. especially especially with somebody when who sex and romance are such an important part of their image. But with, with those kinds of matters, you can never really know what happens between two people or, you know, so much of that. You talked about the Kennedy story. I mean, ultimately, the truth of the Kennedy story is nobody knows or will ever know or can ever know. So Norman Mailer who I suppose is the kind of polar opposite of Joyce Carol Oates. He's the, the hard-drinking misogynist. Yeah. But he, he, wrote, he, he wrote obsessively about Marilyn. And, and he said, why not assume that Marilyn Monroe opens the entire problem of biography? And I think actually he's, he's kind of right. <laughs> because you think Marilyn is the, you know, one of the most recognisable faces of the 20th century. So Dominic, I mean, if we go right back to the beginning there's a particular mystery in what we don't, it's very difficult to pin down what her name was. So famously, uh, she wasn't <laughs> yeah. born Marilyn Monroe, uh, Norma Jean, as in um, Elton John. And yeah. that idea that Norma Jean is the real Marilyn and that Marilyn Monroe is a fake uh, is, is a very kind of powerful idea. It's what animated Candle in the Wind and a lot of studies. But I think it's it's slightly more complicated than that, isn't it? I think it is more complicated because, I mean, Sarah Churchwell says in her book, you know, the classic division that biographers make is between Norma Jean, who was authentic and real, uh, and Marilyn Monroe, who was a fake, and this was an example of kind of selling her soul and, and all this stuff. I mean, actually, of course, changing your name was, was completely common in 1940s Hollywood, wasn't it? I mean, you think of Cary Grant, you think of any number of stars. John Wayne. 
John Wayne, right, exactly. I mean, who, who, yeah. I mean, John Wayne doesn't seem to have been unduly traumatized by it. No, I mean, it's absolutely, I don't think she sold her soul in changing her name, and I don't, nor do I think she lost touch with her original identity or anything like that. She's born Norma Jean Mortensen, isn't she? And um, Mortensen is not her father. I mean, she's illegitimate. I know you're keen to psychoanalyze her. I mean, obviously, you were saying that she there's a sort of a sort of search for hunt for a father. I mean, that's something I think that probably male biographers love to ascribe to her. Well, she did call all her husbands daddy. I'm just throwing that out. She did, but again, Tom, who knows? I know. Who can, I who, know. Who can honestly say why that is, or whether that represents uh, some deep-seated lack, or is it just a quirk? I mean, we just don't know these kinds of things. It's easy. It's, it's tempting for us to speculate, but I think to some degree, this is a classic example of why it's sometimes actually more fruitful to resist speculation than to to admit what you don't know. But but what I would also say is that she she pre- presented herself in the early years of her fame as an orphan. She wasn't an orphan. Yeah. Uh, but her, no, but she might as well have been. So her mother uh, ends up being committed. She's very mentally distressed. Um, but her mother is called Monroe. That's her maiden name. Yes. She burns through men. So she takes on a lot of different names over the course of her life. And so that I think is, you say Mortensen is one of them. Baker is another. And so it goes on. But, um, actually in a way, Monroe is the most authentic. You know, it's a much more authentic name than any of the other names that Marilyn yeah. was given. So we did a podcast, Tom, about California many moons ago, and we were talking in the California podcast about this phenomenon of people from the Midwest, poor Midwesterners moving west to California in search kind of of the promised land. I mean, to some extent, you know, people will remember that kind of image from the Grapes of Wrath or something. Well, that's what her mother's story was. Her mother was a poor Midwesterner who's had a wretched life. You know, she was had constant mental health troubles. She's, as you said, she's she's sort of in and out of um, homes and asylums. Marilyn's father, I think it's now generally agreed, uh, was somebody called Charles Stanley Gifford. He was a video video editor, wasn't he? Film editor, exactly. And a sort of fleeting relationship he had with her mother. They were never, you know. A, a sort of meaningful couple. And Marilyn never, I think, really knew him. Uh, and Marilyn herself was Marilyn. I mean, she's called Norma Jean, of course, at this stage. So she's born in 1926. She grows up in the Depression. The Depression is far worse in the United States than it is in many European countries, much worse than it was in Britain. So she grows up in a climate of kind of austerity and misery and so on. She's in and out of homes with foster, different kind of foster parents who's in an orphanage at one stage isn't she yeah for 21 months and she yeah it's kind of stories about having to do all the washing up all the time which is very like dickens in the yeah. factory I, I mean that's what you say about the dickens but of course what we know about that from her comes from interviews that she gave many many years later of or kind <laughs> yes. of ghost written things and 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 Again, it's very hard to ever get, I mean, how much do you know about somebody's early life from stories they tell decades later? How much do well, they really know themselves? I mean, these are all, as, as, as Norman Whaler would say, these are the fundamental questions of all biographies, not just biographies of Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. And, and one of them, of course, one of the, the key mysteries is whether she was sexually abused, sexually assaulted, on which, yeah. again, there have been many interpretations. And because it's seen as being somehow crucially important to explaining the woman that she becomes people worry at it obsessively but i think it's one of these one of these things you know sarah churchill points out that we we can't know we just can't know 
No, we can't. And, and, and I think what happens with, so the sexual abuse issue is an interesting one because it's, it sort of opens up two different avenues of inquiry. One is the idea, well, one is the idea that Marilyn Monroe was always a victim. She was always abused by men. And that obviously is the, is the, is the sort of Joyce Carol Oates vision of her. Very, very popular vision today. The other is what you might call the sort of, slightly more Norman Mailerish vision, which is that she's always all about sex. So Norman Mailer has this extraordinary line where he says um, of her, she was deliverance, a very Stradivarius of sex, so gorgeous, forgiving, humorous, compliant and tender that even the most mediocre musician would relax his lack of art in the dissolving magic of her violin. And this sort of idea that she's steeped in sex from the first minute to the last insane sexual musk was another phrase he used about her yeah i mean it, it's that's very distasteful now to us but but I, I mean there's an element of truth in it and her image was always obviously deeply wrapped up with sex and and was she abused as a child and how did that therefore feed into that i mean again this is a classic example of it's all speculation isn't it it's all projection from the the legions of writers who have kind of voyeuristically picked over the details of her story and i think the the most honest thing to say is that we actually don't, don't have the the faintest idea but but i think also i, I mean it's indisputable that if you are a, a very very beautiful girl um without much education from a series of broken homes gravity you know in los angeles on the margins of hollywood there are a lot of very rapacious predatory men and yeah. Marilyn became, you know, she, 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 Norma Jean, and then she gets given the name Marilyn by studios. That that is, uh, that's clearly part of the world that she was in. And one of the animating things that, that drives her throughout her career is a, is a deep sense of hostility to the kind of the power brokers and the head of the, the heads of the studios who clearly, I think had, had, I, I don't think there's any dispute about this had been very, very abusive to her early in her career. And that is one of the kind of the, the aspects that enable her to be cast as a feminist icon. And I guess another would be exactly what you were saying, that she's actually completely unapologetic about her own sexuality. Mm -hmm. You know, in the, in the, so she begins her career as a pinup, doesn't she? That's right. Yeah. So pinups are quite a, quite a, quite a new thing. Uh, a couple of decades old, really. I mean, obviously, hugely popular in World War Two. Um, so for American, they will, you know, you'll have a you have pinups in your barracks. Uh, you people will paint nubile young girls on their on the tails of their on bits of their planes and things like that. And and that's how she makes a start, isn't it? But also, there's another war connection, isn't there? Because she's she gets into the sort of the pinup business through being photographed when she's working in a what's she a munitions factory? Yeah, yes. a munitions she, factory in yeah. in Los Angeles. And she she's married very young. I think kind of three weeks after her sixteenth birthday, and her husband is uh, drafted and goes abroad. Both of them are kind of very much involved in the in in the Second World War. Her, the husband is a soldier. She's working in a munitions factory and that's where she gets kind of talent spotted. And yes. And so she she's unapologetic about the pinups, but also interestingly she gets photographed nude and in due course this becomes a great scandal because when she's become a star, you know, the knowledge of these photographs become public. And again, rather than denying it, she's you know, she makes no apologies for it whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, I think actually uh 
there's no disgrace in being a pinup girl. So the two big pinups of the late 1930s and 1940s, Rita Hayworth and Betty Grable, I mean, in a way, they're they're not unrespectable figures. They're enormously popular kind of stars, recognized not just in the United States, but all over the world. And that clearly is Marilyn's ambition. She thinks that she can be, you know, she can be a pinup, she can be a film star as they are a sex symbol. Um, and that's when she starts doing things like she straightens her hair, she she dyes her hair blonde. Now, again, biographers have sort of taken the dyeing of her hair blonde as this sort of Faustian bargain. Yeah, you know, this she's lost touch with her authenticity. But of course, there are thousands upon thousands of women who are doing this at precisely this time because they want to become pinups or because they want to you know break into Hollywood or whatever. I mean, what distinguishes her actually is not the fact that she's inauthentic or anything like that. Having a new name, having a new sort of hairdo is is completely standard. I think it's that she works so hard. She's harder working than most. She's sort of she's yeah. very, very professional and she's within the sort of boundaries of that world. She is smart and she, you know, photographers say she's always looking to try and, you know, find the right angle. Yeah. She works harder than others, you know, all of those kinds of things. Well, ag- again and again, when you read about people who either photographed Marilyn or filmed her, they say there seemed to be nothing particularly impressive about her. And often they'll say she's quite chaotic. You think, how on earth has she made it this way? And then they look at the rushes or they look at the stills and they say she is just transcendently wonderful. Um, there's a kind of amazing quote from Eve Arnold, who was the first woman to join, I think, the Magnum Photos Agency. So, you know, a woman who really knew what she was talking about. And she said that she never knew anyone who even came close to Marilyn in natural ability to use both photographer and still camera. And clearly it's, it's Marilyn's ability to appear on film that, again, I guess, makes her a kind of archetypal figure that yeah. in a way she's exploiting the reach of this new technology in a way that no one else can quite equal and quite rival. Well, I mean, that's an interesting one. It, can anybody else equal it? I mean, there had been big stars before. I mentioned two of them, Rita Hayworth and Betty Grable. There would be other big stars in the 1950s. I think other people do rival it. And actually, when you look at the sort of, they would do huge surveys of exhibitors of the people who who ran cinemas to see who were the biggest stars, who were the people who actually got people through the doors. Marilyn Monroe was never higher than fifth, and she only actually appears in the top 10 in two years, 1953 and 1954. So I think she was equaled in a sort of purely cinematic sort of capacity. But I think what makes her different is that she symbolizes more than anybody else two elements of sort of womanhood that people are looking for in the 1940s during World War II and then in the transition to kind of Eisenhower era affluence. And they are a kind of sexual availability and a kind of voluptuousness and stuff. And the other is a kind of innocent girlishness. And obviously it doesn't, you know, you don't have to be a sort of brain surgeon to be able to to locate those to the anxieties that are afflicting people in an era of wartime and dislocation and instability and so on, that men who are separated from their wives, from their families, are kind of craving an idealized kind of girlish but sexually available sort of fantasy figure, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. But I but I do also think that the, the degree to which she remains to this day an icon, uh, far more than any other female or indeed male actor from the period, is due reflection of her ability to look good on film. And I I think that that's a a quality that has enabled her image to be reproduced. And it's, it's also why she's, she's a kind of, she's a key figure, not just in film, not just in uh, magazines, but also in advertising, isn't she? So, um, yeah, as she does now, so back then she, she 
could sell things to a ferocious degree. Um, so I yeah, guess I the, right, the most famous photo of her is dabbing um, Chanel number five, isn't it, on herself? Chanel, exactly. Um, the fact that she's well, the pinup itself is a kind of consumerist. You know, it's a product, right? I mean, you 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 buy pinups, you get them in magazines, also, and so on. She's always kind of implicated in the world in the in the sort of booming world of American consumerism. And I do think that she, it's not just that she's advertising the product, but of course she is also the product. Isn't well, she? I mean, she is the yeah. So, so the seediest manifestation of that is that the the nude photos for which she got paid what, fifty dollars or something, they get bought by Hugh Hefner. The yeah. He buys the negatives for five hundred dollars. He slaps them all over Playboy, and he makes millions from them. So there's a there's a story. Yeah, as we go towards the break, let's just get her into Hollywood, Tom. Yeah, so let's so, not end on that note. Yes, yeah, so, so she no. uh, <laughs> so she separates from her first husband, divorces him. Yeah, she gets picked up by a, a, a range of talent agents, directors who who recognise her talent. She starts to appear in major films, so uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which features the song that I impersonated so magnificently at the start of this episode yeah so that's 19 so 1953 is really the year she's done a few films in the early 50s but 53 she did niagara gentleman before blondes and how to marry a millionaire and i guess it's the combination of those three isn't it that really yeah um, because that's the first year 53 in which she appears in this top 10 for the exhibitors um this poll based on you know who are the big stars of the day so she's not as big actually as you know john wayne or gary cooper uh, and she's not perhaps as she doesn't have the prestige, nothing like the prestige of a Catherine Hepburn or somebody. But she's she would get people through the doors, I think, by the end of 1953 in a way that she wouldn't have done a couple of years earlier. And then it's the events that happen after that kind of leverage her to become more than just a film star and make her a, a cultural icon. So uh, when we come back after the break, perhaps we'll look at that. We'll look at Joe DiMaggio, Arthur Miller and the Kennedys. Very good. We'll see you after the break. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We're talking about Marilyn Monroe. And Tom, you were saying, so Marilyn Monroe is a film star by 1953, having started out as a pinup. But you were saying that it's, that it's her associations that make her more than just a film star. So the first is, is Joe DiMaggio, who she marries in January 1954. So Joe DiMaggio, I mean, he's a great baseball star, isn't he? And as a cricketer yourself, you'll know, presumably know all about this, um, uh, this, this version of rounders that is popular in America. <laughs> he, uh, star, star of the New York Yankees, Dominic. Yeah. I don't really follow baseball myself, Tom. No, um, but, but I mean, he's a, he's a hugely, a significant figure within baseball. I mean, kind of massive, massive star. And his presumption when he, I mean, he falls very, very deeply in love with, with Marilyn. She loves him clearly. 
and I think always she's look she seems to be looking for emotional rather than financial support. Would you say that's fair? I mean, she's although she plays gold diggers in you know in a whole number of films, she clearly wasn't a gold digger. Um, that wasn't what she was about. And Joe DiMaggio is a very sober, conservative figure, really. Um, and, yeah. and so perhaps embodied, a, again, I'm kind of veering into the, the psychoanalysis. It's almost impossible to avoid when talking about Marilyn, but perhaps she, she embodied a, a measure of solidity that she'd always been looking for. But the problem is that it begins to dawn on you that actually Marilyn is, as a, is becoming a star that is putting his own fame slightly in the shadow. So they, they go on a tour to Japan where Joe DiMaggio is going to be doing some coaching. And she gets completely mobbed when they land in Tokyo. And at the press conference, yeah. it's all about her. It's not about DiMaggio. So you can see he's getting slightly cross about that. And then this is the time of the Korean War. And so Marilyn volunteers to go and entertain the troops in, uh, in, in Korea, which she does brilliantly because she, you, know, yeah. she, you, you said she's incredibly hardworking. I also think she's just a very lovable person. People love her and the troops adore her. And she comes back. And she, she tells her husband, you have no idea what it's like to hear people cheering for you. That's and, right. he says, yes. and he says, yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's, it, he thinks clearly that he, I mean, he's an old fashioned kind of Italian, slightly conservative Italian American kind of blue yeah. collar guy, isn't he? Joe DiMaggio. Each of them, I think, uh, thinks of the other as a, it's too harsh to say a sort of trophy spouse, but there's an element of that. She's the absolute, you know, the, the, the stunning Hollywood starlet that is now his wife. From her point of view, he is the sort of strong, silent, as you said, the sort of enormously successful sports star. And she knew nothing about sport. She, she, she knew nothing about, she basically never heard of him. So both of them are slightly challenged, I think, by the other's fame. I mean, the most famous story about the two of them is that, uh, He's watching in absolute, you know, in a state yeah. of utter fury while she is being photographed in that or filmed in that enormously famous scene that they use to promote the seven year itch when she's standing on the grating in Manhattan and the, the sort of the wind is blowing up her skirt. I have visited the very spot, Dominic. Have you? The last time I was in New York, I went and saw it. Yeah. And was it, well, as, as gratings go, did it, uh, did it delight you? It was a great grate. <laughs> very good. Yeah, but he doesn't like this at all, Joe DiMaggio, does he? I mean, he's very, there are loads of people watching and he, he hates the idea of his wife being a kind of, you know, a fantasy for all these other people and, and a, a willing fantasy, I suppose. That's what he dislikes about it. And if, if he's objecting to that, then, I mean, in a way, it's the, his, his worst nightmare because, of course, that image, it's the photo shoot, not really the film. I mean, it, it's a yeah. key part of the film. But in a sense, the fame of that image has been divorced from The Seven Year Itch. I, I watched The Seven Year Itch a couple of nights ago, and it doesn't stand up. It's a pretty but terrible film. But Tom, isn't that true of, just to break off from the chronology, isn't that one of the peculiar things about Marilyn Monroe, that uh, most of her films are barely watched today? That she has an afterlife that the films don't. Some Like It Hot, I think, is still watched. Some Like It Hot, I agree with you, is still watched. But do people watch Gentlemen Prefer Blondes? Do they watch Niagara? Do they watch The Misfits? Do they watch Bus Stop? I would say the answer no. to all those questions <laughs> is a very, very firm no. And it's a weird thing that everybody recognises Marilyn Monroe 
But probably of those people who recognize her, 90% have never seen and will never see one of her films. I mean, she's not appearing in absolutely sort of the films she's appearing in are not top, top films, are they? They're not, they're not films that win Academy Awards in the 1950s. They're not necessarily box office sort of chart topping films. She has a persona that goes well beyond the appeal of an individual picture, I would say. But again, I think it's going back to what Eve Arnold said about, about her ability to use a photograph to use, you know, the, the, the synergy between photograph and her image and her understanding of how, how to make it work. Because that image is probably, I, I, I mean, I would say that's the most famous image from a film, would you say? Yeah. I mean, I, I can't think of anything more iconic. The image of her with her skirt. Yeah. It's, it's one of the, yeah, I suppose it's one of the most famous. But again, what's that, what does that image represent? It's a kind of hedonism and avail- sexual availability. It's it's New York as well, I think. It's New York, but there's also a kind of innocence to it, but it's all for, obviously from a very, you know, it's men who like that image, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I don't think women sort of line up to have a look at that grating. I think it's men who, who are titillated by it. You're saying that I only went to the grate because I was titillated. Not at all, Dominic. It was a tour of Midtown <laughs> New York, and it was mentioned, so I went to see it. Tom, frankly, it makes a refreshingly red-blooded change from the <laughs> tours of... Roman walls in car parks, um, <laughs> obscure pilgrimage sites, and all these kinds of things. It's, it's, it gladdens my heart to hear that you're doing these kinds of tours as well. <laughs> well, so so talking of the, the the marriage of beauty and etiolated intellect, of course. <laughs> yes, she she, <laughs> she um, so she separates from Joe DiMaggio. Very much like the dynamic in this podcast, Tom. To be honest, she, she separates. Um, <laughs> she separates from Joe DiMaggio. Yeah, and her, she she um, she has a bust up with the studios in in um, Hollywood who have basically been ripping her off, and she makes a point. She essentially she goes to New York and she pursues interests that she'd never before had the opportunity to pursue. So she she wants to become a, a better actress. I think she's a brilliant actress, but she wants she, she she's always kind of crippled by a sense of insecurity, um, and so she she takes up method acting. Uh, she yes. takes up psychoanalysis. So these are all absolutely kind of archetypal 50s New York intellectual pursuits. And it's there that she really starts to get on well with the great playwright of his day, the, the playwright Arthur Miller. Um, and yeah. they end up together. Uh, and it generates one of the great headlines, Egghead Marries Hourglass. Which is, yes. <laughs> but it's um, so, so her, mar- her marriage to Arthur Miller, though, uh, and Dominic, you'll know much more about this than me, embroils her in the, the the anxiety on the part of particularly the Republicans about communist, supposed communist infiltration into Hollywood. And one of the reasons that I guess that uh, Marilyn gravitates towards JFK rather than, say, to Richard Nixon, is that Nixon had been <laughs> particularly involved with that, hadn't he? Well, I, I'm not sure there's an alternative reality in which um, maybe there is. I mean, what a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic fantasy that would be, which Marilyn Monroe has a relationship with Richard Nixon, one of the great lost couples of the 20th century. Yeah, so Arthur Miller, I mean, he's his by far his most famous play is Death of a Salesman, 1949, The Crucible, 1953. So he's already written his his greatest works. And as you say, he is largely because of the crucible, he's identified with the sort of anti-McCarthyist. So the, the McCarthyist movement, the kind of the witch hunts, the the red scares, that the belief that America is being betrayed and sold out by communist subversives. By the time she marries him, actually, McCarthyism has kind of passed its peak. 
So it's a little bit safer than it would have been four or five years earlier. It's still courageous, isn't it, that she stands by him at a time when people's careers are being cancelled or, or, you know, at least, I mean, she, she must have had the anxiety that it might have been. I think it reflects very well on her. I suppose so. I think you're, you're, you're enormously sort of, you're very keen on Marilyn Monroe. I know, Thomas, so I don't want to say anything that will dampen your ardour. Please don't, don't ruin it for me. I, I, I don't think he is under any serious threat in the sort of, what is it, 1956 they get married? Yeah, but, but she doesn't, he doesn't have to be under serious threat for both of them to think that he is under threat. I suppose so. I mean, I think you're, I think you're slightly exaggerating it, to be honest. I mean, he's oh, wow. a hugely popular and respected figure in kind of New York intellectual circles. The, uh, the great heat of McCarthyism has largely faded. Okay, but fine. What she is doing, I, I'll, I'll, I'll throw a sop to you. She is identifying herself, I suppose, with um, a particular American subculture in the mid 1950s. Yeah. I mean he is, you know, he's Jewish. Uh he's very much a kind of New York intellectual kind of figure. He moves in circles that are utterly different from those that she knew in Los Angeles in the kind of certainly in the pinup world or indeed the film world. So she is sort of I mean to some extent this is part of her sort of crusade of self-improvement, isn't it? They're yes. doing the psychoanalysis, yeah. doing the method acting with Lee Strasberg, hanging around with Arthur Miller and his sort of boffin friends. Reading Dostoevsky and Ulysses. Exactly. All of this sort of stuff. This is all about, this is all part of her upward trajectory. People did sneer at it at the time and they laughed at it and they said, oh, this, this, this sort of thick, dumb blonde. But she was never thick. She was incredibly smart. No. And I don't think it's just um, my, my devotion to Marilyn making me say that. I mean, you can see she, she's a very, very witty woman. And well, I mean, she's not incredibly smart, Tom. I mean, she's, she's quite smart. She's, she's smart. And her understanding of the dynamics of the world that she's in are, is, is very, very clear. So why shouldn't she enjoy Dostoevsky? Well, I think that's fine. I think there is, there's probably a middle ground. So I think, is it John Houston who said of her, yeah, he thought she was quite smart. The, the great director, John Houston, he said on the other <laughs> he said she was tremendously pretentious. She had done a lot of shit-ass studying in New York. And she acted as if she oh. never understood why she was funny. And that was precisely what made her so funny. Yeah, but Dominic, this is for the same reason you don't like John Lennon. <laughs> Very similar what? trajectory, going off to New York, <laughs> being pretentious. Um, no, I think, I think there's a, there's a, I, I, I wouldn't put her in the same basket as Lennon, Tom. I mean, I wouldn't do that. Well, that's anyway, that. listen, I mean, by my standards, that is high praise indeed. Yes. Very high praise. So anyway, she, she returns to, oh, she has a, she has a disaster she to London. trip to England. She goes to, yeah, she goes to London to um, the, the Prince and the Showgirl with Laurence Olivier. So it's a Terence Rattigan play and Liv Olivier absolutely despises her, doesn't he? Let's be honest. I mean, he, he has no time for it at all. Yes. He, he, very sexy, dear Marilyn. He doesn't have any time for method acting, Olivier. Um, as he famously said to Dustin Hoffman, when Dustin Hoffman was doing Marathon Man with him and explaining how he ran marathons all the time and he did all this to practice for it and all this and he got into the character and Olivier supposedly said to him, my dear boy, have you never thought of acting? <laughs> and, and I, I don't think it's, the, it's, it's Marilyn's method acting that annoys him. I think it's the, the slight quality of the chaotic that he finds infuriating. Oh, yeah. But again, it's this, it's this kind of magic that she, she, she has that when they again, when they look at the rushes and they put the film together, her performance is transcendent and much, I think, much better than Olivier's. Well, Olivier says that himself, but she 
I think, acts him off the screen. But he says that later on, he put on the film for friends, thinking they would all laugh at it and laugh at her. And he said, by the time it was over, you know, it was very clear that she'd been by far the best person in it. And, um, and he admits that himself to do him credit. So yeah, I don't think yeah, it's, yeah. um, I, I, there is definitely a, a degree of kind of auteur from him when she comes over this sort of American blonde bombshell. Ha ah, ha ha. She's saying big words that she doesn't understand. Uh, but to be, do him credit, I think he, he came to recognize his own mistake. Anyway, she goes back to... Well, no, hold on, Dominic. Hold on, hold on, yes. hold on. Because also she meets the Queen. Born in the same year, of course, 1926. Born in the same year. And um, supposedly she had a lesbian fling with Bridget Bardot at the reception for the Queen. That's absolute bulderdash, isn't it? <laughs> that's one of those stories that's completely made up. I know, but I just thought I'd put it out there. Yeah, I knew you'd love a story like that. I mean... No, not at all. I'm just... It's, but it's, it's, it's all about the... It's the intersection of uh, royalty and... Hollywood and French sophistication and the intersection point makes a story like that irresistible. So I think that that's yeah. a kind of interesting demonstration of how when you have the ingredients, people just can't resist mixing them all up and generating a fantastical concoction. I just throw that out there. Fantastical concoction. So by this point, actually, the funny thing is that by this point, 1956, 1957, I mean, she's probably more famous than she's ever been. And yet you could argue that there were the shining exception of some like it hot the billy wilder film that is yet to come the best days of her career are already behind her so it's at this point that she drops out of those lists of the of the biggest stars the stars who will basically get bums on seats in american cinemas and actually some like it hot is the only film that she has yet to make that anybody ever watches today i mean that's pretty much right isn't it she's got yeah, i think so you know what she's got about six years to live but actually, those six years are pretty unhappy years, one way or another. I mean, she's becoming increasingly dependent on pills and drugs, the yeah. lateness, the endless, demanding endless retakes. You know, it's actually a fairly, it's a, it's a sort of, you don't have to see it through the lens of her death and to, you know, with a sort of teleology, knowing that the, the, the sort of her doom is fast approaching, to see it as actually a pretty standard Hollywood story of somebody who's had this tremendous rise, this peak, and now the, the decline begins. Or do you think I'm being too harsh, Tom? No, I don't think so. Um, she, she makes this film, The Misfits, that's been written by Arthur Miller, and it, it, it's a kind of pretentious Western, I guess would be yeah. <laughs> the best way to describe it. Um, and she doesn't really like it. She doesn't like the script and she doesn't like the, the, because it's, it's clearly, it's Miller's un portrayal of, of, of his wife and she doesn't like the portrayal. And we should say as well that while in England, she supposedly seen a diary entry that Miller had written, um, criticizing her which is, is conventionally cast as a kind of mortal blow to her relationship. Mm. And, and The Misfits was kind of designed to be the film that would showcase her as a, a kind of great tragic actress. And it, it doesn't really work. And it's part of the, um, the, the it, it contributes to the disintegration of her marriage to Miller. And, and so yeah. they separate. And so she's back on her, her own again. Would you go so far as to say that she is, she doesn't like being alone. I mean, she's nervous of being alone. I think she's needy. I think most people say that she's quite a needy person, which is not unreasonable. I mean, there are lots of needy people. And I mean, to delve once more into the sort of murky waters of amateur psychology. Yes. Well, that's what I was worrying that you'd accuse me of doing. <laughs> but it's fine when I do it, Tom. I mean, <laughs> well, yes, go ahead. Um, no, but I mean, she's somebody who's had a troubled or, or 
uh, a background with a pretty high degree of instability. So it makes sense that she would crave a degree of stability. And and you're right, she's she doesn't she's not good at being on her own. Her health is pretty awful. She's popping pills like nobody's business by this point. Yeah, and she suffers quite badly from endometriosis, for example. She's taking a lot of pills. Again, these things are not because she dies in 1962. We read everything backwards. So we say, oh, she's popping pills. Therefore, she's on a downward spiral that will end in disaster. But of course, lots of people are taking a lot of pills. Barbiturates are very common in Hollywood and in New York um, at the turn of the 1960s. So that doesn't make her tremendously unusual, I would say. No, no. Uh, but, and, and also you say that, I mean, after Some Like It Hot, her, her films slightly go off the boil. But her, her ability to situate herself in the kind of the, the crosshairs of American life remains unexampled. So she becomes very close to uh, to Frank Sinatra, probably the the biggest name in music in the world at the time, and the Rat Pack, and of course, rumored affairs with Bobby Kennedy, and yes, his mother, the President of the United States, John F. Kennedy. Okay, so so this obviously transforms her her historical reputation, doesn't it? Her posthumous reputation. I mean, we see it her entire life now through the lens of those Kennedy supposed Kennedy relationships. Here's what I think about those. John F. Kennedy was a man who had an enormous number of affairs. Um, whether he was, you know, people have different sort of theories about, about why, actually. Is it because he suffers from Addison's disease and this horrendous kind of health complaints and therefore he's trying to blot out the pain? Is it because he has this kind of droit de seigneur? Yes. This kind of aristocratic. <laughs> yes. Um, or, or is it just that he's, you know, an extremely good-looking, kind of slightly oversexed, sort of bloke in 1960s America. Marilyn Monroe, I think, without any doubt, had a liaison with him or multiple liaisons. It, it almost certainly wasn't a love affair. There's no reason to believe that it was. And there's no reason to believe that there's anything especially actually even that exciting about it. It's only a sort of prurient voyeurism that has elevated well, this into something. I don't think it's just voyeurism, though, is it? It's, it's the conspiracy theory. It's the sense that there are deep truths and the fact that she then dies... Yeah, I know. But I mean, Sarah Churchill is very good about this. She sort of says, maybe they were just having an affair because, you know, they quite fancied each other and <laughs> yeah, of you know, course. saw each other a few times and, and that's an end to it. Of <laughs> that's not unheard of in, yeah, of course. in the history of the human race. Of, of course. But, but, but because she's having an affair with Kennedy and with Sinatra... Yeah. And Sinatra, you know, and she goes to hang out with Sinatra in places that are clearly funded by the mafia. So yeah. Sinatra gives her a dog and she calls it Maff after the mafia. <laughs> so she's very much aware of all this. So she is an intersection point between the mafia and JFK. And that, I think, is why it's become part of the of broader narrative generated by, by Kennedy's assassination the year after Marilyn's death. Um, and, and what about Bob, what about Bobby Kennedy? I've always found that story a tiny bit more implausible, actually. It's actually the more common one that people tell. So people get very excited about the thought that she had an affair with the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy. I, and in fact, you will often read in this sort of more exploitative biographies that they were this tremendous love affair and they were this sort of couple that were separated by fate and all this kind of thing. I mean, you could hardly think of two more different personalities than Robert Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe. Robert Kennedy was a very 
controlled, intense, serious kind of man, um, who was his brother's hatchet man, actually, at this time in his career, as, as it sort of in JFK's campaign in 1960, and then as his attorney general. Robert Kennedy also had a colossal amount of children within a very short period of time, because he's a very kind of serious Catholic. So he's got about 27 kids. I mean, just a preposterous number of children. I, I don't know. I think the, the, the trouble, the thing about the affair with Robert Kennedy is there is literally no evidence at all. So all there is is gossip that is circ- that's constantly sort of, you know, recirculated in all the different biographies. But there's no kind of documentary evidence that they had this relationship. It's but just that, 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 pure supposition. <laughs> but, but the same is true of Roswell, of course. <laughs> well, yeah. Yes, it, it's about the same level as Roswell, I think it's fair to say, <laughs> yeah. Tom. I think that's a very good yeah. comparison. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's th- th- this is the background: Kennedy's Sinatra that is providing the context for th- for the years, the months, the days that leads up to her death. Right. I mean, the big thing that happens in the run up to her death that everybody will remember is she sings "Happy Birthday" to Kennedy at Madison Square Garden. His birthday, uh, he has this sort of premature birthday celebration, and I think it's the nineteenth of May, nineteen sixty two, and she is squeezed into this incredibly sort of um, sexy figure hugging dress, and she sings in a very sort of breathy kind of way breathy. breathy exactly it was a breathy way i mean it's just a very um this sort of you know overtly sexualized way happy birthday mr president and for everybody in the know i mean it's they think it's it's quite close to the bone it's quite on the nose it's quite funny um that she's almost publicly flaunting the fact that they've had a relationship but again had had she not died several months later and had he then not died and had a second term as president and been embroiled in vietnam would this be this sort of doomed moment i mean obviously it wouldn't be but but it did and so it is i mean that's, yes, fair enough fair enough that's, <laughs> that's that's the whole point i mean point entirely taken but she does die and she kind of dies she, she dies at the age of 36 the same yeah. age that byron died um and and it's that that enables her to you know she doesn't grow old but but what don't you think that what you think of the death colors the entire story of course absolutely you back project it absolutely completely yeah, you back project the whole thing or if you think that she committed suicide because she's so miserable and unhappy of her. course she's been or, a victim all yeah, her or life she's being murdered by by, by by bobby kennedy or jfk or the mafia right. or i mean of course absolutely i mean you but listeners will not be surprised that i do not think she was murdered by the mafia <laughs> do you think it was bobby kennedy then i don't think she's murdered by the kennedys donald spoto one of her biographers uh has a complicated theory about that basically is that it boils down to it being an accident sarah churchwell i think thinks it was probably an accident that seems as likely as anything to me i mean the truth is again we cannot know. So anybody who tells you they know is is wrong, is just wrong, because we cannot know. Um, but I think the most likely thing is that she's taking an awful lot of pills of various kinds, and she probably takes an, an accidental overdose. I mean, again, it's hardly uncommon among Hollywood film stars, rock stars, and so on of the 1960s and 1970s, is it? I mean, but I, th- I so, so people compare her to Elvis or to Jim Morrison or whatever, you know, famous people who die young but i i think that she's much better thought of as part of that nexus of weird conspiracy 
So I, I mentioned Roswell. I think it's not, uh, I think she, she has become part of that kind of industry of conspiracy theories. But, yeah. uh, but, but because she, you know, she, she, it's not just that she was intimate with key, key, I mean, you know, Arthur Miller, Joe DiMaggio, the Kennedys, Frank Sinatra. I mean, these are titanic figures in the culture of, of mid-century America, but also that she is so beautiful and she dies young. And I think I'm right that the, the first of the um, the screen prints that Warhol does is of Marilyn. So she sets the blazes the path for all the other Chairman Mao's and Elizabeth II and all the other ones that, that he'll go on mm. to do. Sarah Churchill is brilliant on this, on how the moment she dies, and maybe even before she's died, it, the myth is cannibalizing her, the, the real Marilyn. And, and so it has always done. And, and I think that, the you know, the, the fact that um, someone can be cannibalized to the degree that she has been tells us a lot about the evolution of, of popular culture and media over the decades that have, have followed her death, don't you think? I think that's I think that's true. I think the timing is really important. So she dies in 1962 in the summer of 1962. Kennedy dies in the autumn of 1963. So they they're quite compressed. Robert Kennedy dies in 1968 the same year as Martin Luther King. Both Marilyn Monroe and and John F Kennedy died before the 60s took, you know, what in sort of narrative terms are their sort of dark downward turn. So they both die before the war in Vietnam really comes to dominate the headlines. They die before the civil rights movement, before the sort of the, 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 the marches and the martyrdom give way to kind of to the riots in sixty-seven, sixty-eight. Yeah, and assassinations until violence comes to dominate the headlines rather than, let's say, justice, if you like. So I think... Do you think that that gets back projected, the sense that there is a kind of violence within American public life that devours yeah. its own? I mean, I think that to some degree, uh, to some degree, I suppose you could say that violence was always there, um, simmering below the surface. But I think you're right that um, these are sort of... These, are the, these now in the sort of standard um, pop cultural narrative become kind of great harbingers of doom, don't they? The death of Marilyn Monroe and the death of John F. Kennedy. So if Marilyn had lived, if, if it was an accident and the accident had not happened, what would her life have looked like in the later 1960s and 1970s? She would presumably have done other films, but not probably very successful films. She would have been yesterday's woman. She'd have been left behind by, I don't know, Faye Dunaway or younger kind of stars who were very different kind of image of sexuality. Well, I think I think you look at Elizabeth Taylor, don't you think? Yeah, exactly, Elizabeth Taylor. So, so what happens to Elizabeth Taylor would be would have been her Marilyn's parabola, I guess. Yeah, I mean, without being this may uh, annoy some listeners who are very attached to Marilyn Monroe, but you can imagine a future in which she she's walking around in 1972 and it's she's kind of blousy. There's a lot of booze. She hasn't made a film in five years. Directors say she's impossible to work with. You know, she's thrown off a flight. <laughs> the, the story kind of writes itself. She's got off with Richard Nixon at last. <laughs> yes, the, the couple that was meant to be. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, because she's cut down when she is in 1962, she becomes the symbol of a kind of lost innocence, I suppose, doesn't she? Because, of course, this is the point up to the 1960s, sexuality and, and sort of sex is framed very much in terms of kind of increasing availability and visibility and so on. And this sort of, 
there's no sense or very much less of a sense of it being politically conflicted as it becomes later in the 1960s and then the 1970s. So you talked earlier about her as a, as a sort of feminist figure, but really that, that sort of 60s feminism has yet to get underway by the time of her death. And it's interesting to think about how she would be perceived. You know, how she, how would she have adapted to that world? Would she have continued to kind of improve herself, as it were, and to, to sort of ride the wave? Or would she have been left behind? Would she have been a relic of a sort of slightly discredited, shop-soiled kind of 50s well, world? Well, I, I suppose the brutal truth is that people probably wouldn't, wouldn't care what she thought, actually. Do people care what Elizabeth Taylor thought? Probably not. The weird thing is that she wouldn't be the icon that she is now, right? I mean, yeah, if the blousiness and the being kicked off Concord had happened in yeah. 1976, you know, Gap or whoever, I mean, Gap used her image in the 1990s. Would they have used it in the 1990s? No, of course they wouldn't, because they don't use Elizabeth Taylor now. No, I agree. But that's, I mean, that, and so that's why she was so, you know, why the um, candle in the wind <laughs> could so readily be adapted by Elton John to yeah. the death of Diana as well. I mean, I, I think in some ways, the funny thing about Marilyn Monroe is that she's become so confused with, with, Diana. with the Kennedy story, hasn't she? Oh, um, with, with Diana Kennedy as well. Yes. Uh, yeah. Do you know, I mean, she's, well, I mean, that's the interesting thing about Marilyn Monroe that we could talk for sort of three hours and there are lots of different kind of angles into the story. But actually the funny thing is, what is so often missing, what we struggle to get a sense of is actually the woman herself, isn't it? Because a lot of what we've talked about in this podcast has been about iconography and about symbolism. But the actual, the, the reality yeah, of the I, woman is, is, is really hard to get at, I think. I, I, well, I called her lovable. I, every biography of, I've, of her I've read, whenever she's allowed to speak in her own voice, she comes across yeah. as very smart, very funny, very likable. I mean, clearly quite difficult I mean, she was a Hollywood diva, but I think the most, the most kind of personally attractive of, of all the Hollywood stars, all the big Hollywood stars. You think so? Mm, I do. Yeah, I do. You'd rather go for, for dinner with Marilyn Monroe than with Grace Kelly, Tom? I think I probably would, yeah. Okay, well, on that, you and I would differ. So I suppose, Dominic, I mean, essentially, uh, you know, if we want to sum up what this episode's been about, in a very real sense, she was like a candle in the wind. Is that what you'd say? Oh, Tom, that's painful. That's painful. <laughs> Oh, I think uh, I think she's a fascinating. She's an example of the challenges of biography on the one hand, and trying to make sense to fit into a historical narrative, the life of a complicated indiv individual. But she's also a brilliant way to talk about fifties and sixties America. And actually, we will be coming back almost exactly a year from now. <laughs> so that's a long time for listeners to wait. But we will be finally returning to the subject of the Kennedy assassination, won't we, in twenty twenty three for the anniversary. Um, yes. And I'm really looking forward to that because we can go into it in depth and talk about all the conspiracy theories. All of you who listen, who, who espouse one particular theory or other, you'll all find something to offend you and to, and to, um, <laughs> as we dismiss all the theories. As we reveal and the we truth. And we reveal the real truth. Exactly. Frank Sinatra killing JFK because he'd murdered Marilyn. The truth will out. Well, the truth is out there and we will reveal it. Thanks very much for listening. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. <laughs>